0: You guys can join me in Mark 16 as I read the passage for today's um, sermon. And it reads, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Siloam bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for the trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. These are the words of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Manny. Thank you, team, for leading us today. Uh, And if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. The text that Manny just read for us will be the one for our consideration today on Easter Sunday. My name is Jason, I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and it's always good news when we get to open up God's Word uh, amidst all of the other offerings and ideas of the day. It's good to consider the truth and beauty of Jesus um, from His Word, from what He has said, from how He has spoken uh, through the centuries. So this is what we do. This is what we do every week, and yet in particular today, it's, uh, it's special. There's a uniqueness to coming to this Word today. Um, and in the past week, uh, Jesus, we have been following Jesus as He's ventured into the city uh, all the way to a cross. If you remember, though, we've been asking the Lord to give us eyes to see, not just um, to watch Him come into the city or watch Him die, but to understand why. Why is it that all of this is taking place? Um, And we can't do that on our own. We can't merely look at black letters on a white page and comprehend the fullness of why Jesus enters into the city or why he hangs on a cross without some spiritual vision, without understanding from the Lord, or as some theologians speak about it, illumination, the Holy Spirit actually helping us to see what we can't on our own. Um, And so we come as needy people who need help to understand uh, something. And as we've done that, we saw that Jesus didn't just come into a town like a king on a donkey it a happenstance, but He was demonstrating, even ushering in the virtues of a kingdom that was not of this world. And as Jesus dies on a cross, we don't just see someone giving out their life like anyone else, we see someone telling us, redefining, if you will, what love really looks like. That real love always leads to death. And today, of course, we won't look at Him walking into the city, or rather riding into the city on a donkey, and we won't look at Him on a cross, but now we'll look at Him rise from the dead. But we'll ask a similar question, why? Why is it that he rose from the dead? For some of us, that's an old tale. Uh, For some of us, that may be new. But this is at the very center, the very heart of our story. Our heritage as followers of Jesus is that he didn't just come to the city. He didn't just die on a cross. But in fact, he rose in victory over Satan's sin and death uh, from a tomb, from an actual grave. And so we just simply need to ask, what do we see when we look at him? What do we see when we consider why Jesus rose from the dead. Well, I think one of the first things that we notice when we open up this text is their response. Their response is not perhaps what we would expect it to be. It's, It's often not what we feel when we enter into a resurrection space once a year on Easter Sunday. See, while someone coming back to life would seem to be cause for celebration, the initial response by these women in particular and many others is fear That's not often what we would expect, it's not what we would expect to happen in the middle of the sorrow that they have experienced in the death of their friend and their teacher, but the gospel writer Mark tells us that a group of women come to a tomb and discover that it's empty. What's more, an angel explains to them what has happened and he tells them to go tell everybody about it, right? But they don't. Instead, what happens? They leave the tomb, they're trembling, they're astonished, they're silent, and they're afraid. I think that's interesting. Fear, not celebration, is the initial response to resurrection. And so, if you don't feel like celebrating today, you're in good company. (laughs) If you don't feel like that is natural to you or that there is some sort of apprehension, if you will, to give in to this hope, that was the first response as well. See, that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about fear, and I want to talk about more to the point of how it is that Jesus' resurrection actually meaningfully responds or overcomes our fear. I wanna talk about how his resurrection actually really touches us in real space and real time, not just with a nice story that somehow will soothe our nerves, but something that will reorient our fears and our understanding of what hope actually is. Because in some way, I think if we're honest, we've never been more scared in our lives. We put on good faces, right? Good stories. We follow the right people, read the right books to sort of like give us some stability in life. But I'll, I'm terrified. I'm terrified. I, I don't have fears sort of evaporate when I turn on the news or when I read uh, a New York Times column. They almost always are elevated. Uh, it's very rarely that I go to social media and I go, that really put me at peace. <laughs> That's really such a comfort, I think I'm going to do another dive into the, you know, the Twitter sphere before I go to bed, because that'll really give me some rest. I think we're all scared, and I don't think that we often know what to do with all of that fear, and I think the resurrection gives us real clarity. So here's how I'd like to organize our time today. First we'll look at the expectation of hope, and then we'll look at the reason for fear, and lastly we'll look at hope over fear. So we'll look at the expectation of hope. Uh, the the reason for our fear, and then lastly, the hope we have over fear. So let me pray and ask for God's help in this. Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful. We are grateful to be in this space. It is not far in our recollection when we were gathering on Easter Sunday on couches looking at screens because we couldn't meet in person. And so this is still a joy to us. May that never wane. Perhaps for others of us, it's been a minute since we've been in a space with other people. Perhaps isolation has felt more comfortable than community. And so we're grateful for this moment as well. Perhaps there's many different animosities or pains, frustrations that may have kept us from this moment, from uh, this gathering today. And while the gathering does not have saving power, Your Word really does. And so we're really grateful that we can come to Your Word over and against the many voices that have drowned out Yours, perhaps through the week and through the years. We thank You that You speak clearly, You speak lovingly, You speak graciously, gently, and humbly to us through Your Word. So, help us to listen today. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. So, Mark opens up his Gospel account. Each of the writers of the four Gospels have an account of the resurrection, but he opens up his resurrection account, rather, um, focused on these women. He focuses on these women in particular on their expectations. So let's look again, verses 1 through 3, if you're still there, in Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance? of the tomb. Notice in every detail, Mark is telling us about their expectation. They expect to find death. It's really clear. Notice they have brought these spices and anointment, why? To curb the stench of a decaying body. They expect to find death. And as they approach, they have this conversation about, you know, we really didn't plan well. Uh, There's going to be a huge stone in front of this uh, tomb. Who's going to move it? right? So, why? Because they expect it's still closed, there is still death, but Jesus had not taught them to expect death. In fact, throughout His earthly ministry, He constantly was setting this expectation of hope. You see, Jesus knew that when He died, this was going to be very difficult for them to reconcile. He knew that they would be tempted To fear. He knew without him present in the same way, they would likely be drawn to give in to the elements, if you will, of their surroundings and of their circumstance to be gripped by grief and fear. And so, three times, three separate times, Jesus sets an expectation of hope. In other words, he gathers his disciple and he goes, Okay, here's what's going to happen. I know you don't have a framework for this, so let me just tell you what's going to happen. He does it three times. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, He says in beginning to teach them and he began to teach them rather that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again mark chapter 9 a couple of scenes later in his ministry he was teaching his disciples saying to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed after three days he will rise Jesus continues to graciously repeat himself. Side note, isn't it wonderful that we have a God who repeats himself? Can I get an amen? That's really good news. It's really good news. Mark 10. See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will what? Rise. You're like, bet. We got this, Jesus. It's clear now. Your whole ministry has been on repeat. We understand. It's going to get hard. It's going to get dark, but everything is going to be okay. You're going to die, but you told us you're going to rise. Except for the fact that every single time, every single time he responds in this way, they respond with fear. Jesus gives away the ending. He knows they'll be afraid. And he doesn't want them to be afraid. He wants them to have hope. So literally, he tells them what's going to happen three times. Yet what is fascinating is that with every prediction of his death and resurrection, people respond with fear. In Mark 8, Peter actually rebukes Jesus and says, This is a bad idea. Don't do this. So it's not only am I afraid, but I want you to rethink this whole plan, right? And in Mark chapter nine, we're told that they were so befuddled and so afraid, they didn't ask any follow-up questions, right? That that makes sense, I can relate to that. This is so otherworldly, I'm terrified to push in and lean in and really understand what you're saying. And then in uh, Mark chapter 10, they were so over it that they just started arguing about who had the most power. So so Peter responds by saying, don't do this. And then in Mark 9, they respond by not asking any questions because they're terrified. And then in Mark 10, they respond by bickering amongst themselves about who's going to sit at the left and the right of Jesus and have the most power when he doesn't die but takes a throne, right? So none of this is sinking in. Are you tracking with me? This gives us so much hope, doesn't it? You ever feel like you go weeks and weeks, maybe you read something or you hear God speak or you're in the gathering at a church service and you're like, I don't get it. I'm not, this doesn't make sense to me. Welcome to discipleship. This is absolutely a part of the deal, right? Where God is graciously repeating himself over and over again. And yet at each proclamation of hope, there's fear. There's misunderstanding. There's even rejection, holding the story at arm's length and not letting it sink in. I wonder why. Why is that? Why do we respond to hope with fear? Because you see, Jesus didn't just know that his disciples in the first century would be afraid. He knew that we would be afraid too. He knew you and I would wrestle with fear and doubt. He knew there would be a day that you and I would face this unsettling emotion, but he wanted us to have peace. He didn't want us to be without hope. He wanted us to live with hope. And so he gave his people he gave his earliest followers this principle he says in John 16 verse 33 i have said these things speaking about how he will go to the father and how he will be with him he said i have said all of these things to you that in me you may have peace he says in the world in this world you will have tribulation but take heart because i have overcome the world so jesus even says to us things are going to get hard things are going to get scary you are going to face a scary world And many of us have stories of this over and over again, don't we? He knew that you would face the pain of miscarriage. He knew that you would face the pain of wondering how in the world am I going to keep my children safe in this block, in this city, in this world. He knew that we would face the fear of loneliness, of believing if I mess up my friendships then I'm going to be left all by myself forever. He knew that we would face sickness, whether personally or in our family, and wonder how many holidays do we have left together. He knew we'd face conflict in our homes. He knew we would face conflict in our work. He knew that it would feel like what the only hope is to keep changing my job over and over and over again because nobody is ever going to respect me. He knew that we would face the fear of getting old, of getting hurt, of getting lost. He knew, he anticipated all of that. And in all of that, he sets this expectation of hope. He says, take heart, be hopeful. Why? Because I've overcome whatever it is you could possibly fear would overcome you. Jesus sets an expectation of hope, just like he did with his disciples. It's no different. He sets an expectation with us. He sets an expectation with them. Three times, don't be afraid. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. He tells us all the time, don't be afraid. I know you're going to go through hell, but I got you. I will overcome even that. And yet, that sounds good. But like his earliest followers, doesn't that in some respects, like go in one ear and out the other? That in this world you will have trouble, but I've got you. I've overcome the world. You're like, cool. Still hurts. Still hurts. Still feels like I'm walking through fear and frustration and pain all the time. See, I think just like the disciples, a lot of times we respond to hope with fear too. Why is that? Why do we respond to hope with fear? Well, in order to understand that, I think we have to name our fears. I think we have to get really clear. This is, this is a step of overcoming our fears that is really hard to do. I've been through a lot of counseling to try to understand how do I articulate the things that I'm most afraid of because it takes community, it takes help, it takes my small group, it takes my wife, good lord, it takes my children. Right? They point out ways like, Dad, I think you're kind of afraid right now. You're like, all right, well, go to your room, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Don't talk to me like that. But see, I, I think we have to name our fear because fear hates that. Fear hates being named. Fear hates being put in the light and being articulated so clearly that it can't hide in the shadows anymore. So let's name fear this morning, shall we? Let's name it by watching the women as they walk through this moment on this particular Easter, the very first Easter Sunday. Naming their fears, I think, will go a long way in helping us name our own. Remember, they come to the tomb with fear. They come without hope. But look as Mark continues to walk us through their morning, this fear persists even more. Look at verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So they come to the tomb with fear. And when they get to the tomb, there's more fear. Now, we may assume that their hopelessness would melt away once they hear some good news, right? After all, if they were afraid that their friend was dead, wouldn't an angel and the news that this angel is presenting to them, wouldn't that feel healing and hopeful and immediately transformative, right? That would would be a nice story. But that's not the initial effect at all. Even after they find the tomb empty and the angel with this message, that Jesus is risen, still there's fear. Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone. Why? For they were afraid. Do you see how persistent fear is? Do you see how averse we can be to hope, to receiving hope even when it is speaking back to us in the very moment that we are met by our greatest fear? Something is not sinking in. Something's not breaking through. Hope is not overwhelming fear. Fear seems, in fact, to be overwhelming hope at every turn. Hope seems like the strong thing in this story, or rather fear does. Now, Mark's account, interestingly enough, likely ends right there. You may see in your um, copy of the scriptures that there's this little parenthetical about how verses 9 through 20 was not in the earliest manuscripts. And, and we, like Bible readers, love that kind of stuff. It's so interesting and wonderful, right? But suffice to say, I will not bore you with all of the elements of it because I don't know all of them. Um, but what is clear is that likely the earliest copies of Mark stop there. And so it wasn't till later that verses 9 through 20 are added. In other words, the, the later manuscripts that might have more, um, less scholarship, less uh, backing, less trustworthiness to them, those are the ones that include verses 9 through 20. In, uh, in other words, it ends with this unsettling picture of fear. And of course, people came and wrote more, right? They're like, that's uncomfortable. Let's not end with fear. Let's end with hope. Let's end with a great story. So if you keep reading in Mark, it gets a lot more hopeful. I like to stop at verse 8 because that feels human. That feels real. That feels like what my Sunday, Easter Sunday is like. I still got this fear. See, I think this is so real. I think it's so true. Fear is so persistent. It's hard to trust hope when you're riddled with this kind of alarm. When you or I are in the depths of grief, depression, anxiety, worry, suffering, fear, when the tribulations of life are at their worst, it doesn't feel like Jesus has overcome the world, does it? And I'm just supposed to be happy because that's what the Bible says? I see there's something so human about this wrestling that's going on. See, when the tomb is empty, and the angel shows up, and even a resurrection message is spoken, it doesn't feel like hope yet, does it? At least the women don't seem to like, go, you know what? I bet from now on, people will gather on Sundays and for 2000 years, everyone will get dressed up and Jason will put on a khaki suit. It's gonna be awesome because everyone's gonna believe this. That's not what they think. They're still fearful. This is why I think the women are still battling fear because hope is not about an empty tomb. Hope is not even about an angel showing up. Hope is not even about a message. See, none of this actually feels like real hope because though fear is an emotion, these women are not being emotional. They are dealing with real, substantial fears. See, fear is rarely emotional, but we often discredit it and even try to cast it aside in our own heart. I just need to feel better. I I need to change my emotions, right? But fear is so much more than that. Psychologists have defined fear as the intense emotion aroused by the detection of imminent threat involving an immediate alarm reaction that mobilizes the organisms by triggering a set of physiological changes. There's a lot going on when we're afraid. In other words, fear is felt in the body. Whether or not that threat is real or not, it feels the same way. The body doesn't know the difference. That's why they were trembling. That's why in their astonishment, Mark says, it seized them. They were physically manifesting their fears. This wasn't a light fear. This was a deep-seated fear that was happening in their hearts. It would be easy, I think, to flippantly like cast aside their emotions today and go, well, why didn't they believe? Why aren't they hopeful like us? We're terrified too. We embody our fears too. This is still what we deal with. I think what's really important is to give dignity, or rather to acknowledge the dignity of their fears, because I think we need to acknowledge the dignity of our own, to not cast them aside too quickly, but to settle in them so that we actually understand and name them. Here are a few things I think that they were afraid of. I think that they feared death. And I know that might sound like a crazy idea, but I think they were terrified by the idea of death. See, just three days ago, they watched their friend, their teacher, hang on a cross, suffer, bleed, and breathe his last. Everything about their biology, everything about they, they've learned their entire life is that death is dreadful and it's final. And though they may have seen Lazarus raised from the dead or others, they had countless more stories of people dying and that was the end. They have been traumatized just like you and me by death. Death is terrifying. One of the ways we actually get through life is by not thinking about death. Why? Because it's terrifying. If we think about death too much, it immobilizes us. Fear of death then is this lifelong lesson that we have to unlearn. But I don't think they were just afraid of death. I think they were also afraid of shame. See, think about what they've been through the past few days and really what they've been through the past three years. For three years, they've been walking with Jesus. They have been detaching from their family's religious tradition. They have begun to follow this person that a lot of people were saying was a wingnut, was crazy. He He was a psycho, thinking that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. And they sold everything and followed him. And now, in the three days since Jesus has died, they have been walking in depression and in darkness, thinking, how in the world can I face my family again? Because I... I did everything and backed this guy, and now he's gone. Do you see that shame that, that all of a sudden they're not just saying, oh, we were wrong, we can change our minds, right? It goes really well when we change our minds today, right? People are like, good for you, what a thinker and mature. We're like, that's not what you've always believed, shame on you, right? Shame is something we start wearing. And these women did not just think that they were wrong in idea, they thought themselves they were wrong. See, fear of shame doesn't wash away very quickly, does it? Lastly, I think that they were afraid of earthly powers because their whole lives had been under Roman occupation. And Jesus' story of death was just another expression of how the Roman empire always wins. It's just another expression of earthly power overcoming any kind of revolution. They had learned to fear Rome, in other words, their entire lives, and so they're bringing this fear to the tomb as well. And again, resurrection, a story that then would upset the entire like, global or prevailing world power of everyday life, that was a terrifying idea to them. So as they're coming to the tomb, they're collecting their fears, perhaps without naming, us, naming them, and so they just have this jumbled feeling of fear that at every single stretch and everywhere they turn only gets more complicated. See, this is the reason, I think, for their fear. This is why they were afraid. This is why fear is so persistent. You see, an empty tomb doesn't overcome death. The presence of an angel doesn't wash away shame. A really good story does not dismantle the Roman empire. This doesn't feel like hope yet. Again, all after all that these are not exactly hope. There's something more. These are merely circumstances, if you will, that are surrounding hope. And I wonder if fear doesn't persist within our own hearts because instead of being honest about our own fears and naming them and seeking healing and even church becoming a people where it is safe and normal to name our fears in our weakness, I wonder if we don't embrace that is because we have settled for circumstances of hope. And not hope itself. In other words, I wonder if we've built our lives on the circumstances surrounding Jesus' resurrection, but not on Jesus Himself. I wonder if that's why we're all still afraid. If we build our lives on religious sentiment, like the traditions of our family, or even being part of a church. But death still haunts all of us. See, we haven't reconciled that fear. We build our lives on trying to be a good person, but shame still persists because we haven't been healed inwardly. We build our lives on seeking general ideas of justice and equality and equity and humility, but we still submit to the powers of the day like money and politics and celebrity. You see, when we settle for mere expressions or mere sentiments of hope, our fears are never overcome. But let's be honest. None of those really feel like hope, do they? We just feel like that's just what we have to settle for. Maybe that's the gospel. The gospel is I'm not alone and I have a church family. The gospel is I try really hard to be a good person. Maybe some people like me, maybe some don't. And it's okay, we'll keep going. But none of these actually overcome fear, do they? Fortunately, there is more to Mark's account than unresolved fear. Look again at the angel's words in verse 7. Mark 16 verse 7, he says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Watch this, there you will see him. There you will see him just as he told you. He tells the women and the disciples to go to Galilee, why? Because that's where Jesus is. That's where Jesus is. In fact, Jesus was even explicit in setting the expectations for hope. See, in his conversation with Peter, Jesus actually says in Mark 14, but after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Why is this such an important detail? Because that's what's really hopeful. An empty tomb is not hopeful. An angel, that's still terrifying. Why are you here? Why are you so shiny? You're telling me a story. I want to believe it. Do you have any evidence? The only evidence that will work is Jesus himself, because Jesus alone is hopeful. See, sometimes we love the circumstances of hope because they feel nice, but they do not quiet our fears. Only one kind of hope does that, real hope, not an empty tomb, not the angel showing up, not a good message. This is all that surrounds hope because our hope is actually a person, not a story. Our hope is Jesus, not just what he has done or what he promises to do. And from the very beginning, he didn't just promise an empty tomb and a good story to tell once a year. He promised to give us himself. That's what he has promised you. Do you know that your God loves you so much that he promises to not just change your circumstances, but to give you himself? That's so much better, isn't it? Many of us have people in our lives who will do stuff for us, but they don't want to be with us. It's fundamentally different. They'll send checks, they'll send meals, but you you want to hang out? I'm good. You know the difference. Jesus loves you so much that he doesn't just give you circumstances of hope, he gives you himself. You see, that doesn't just feel like hope, that's real hope. Through his resurrection, then Jesus doesn't just offer a general good feeling of a brighter tomorrow. He meets you at the very epicenter of your fears. He meets you in your fear of death. He meets you in your fear of shame. He meets us in our fear of earthly powers you see in him the persistence of fear meets its match in the persistence of his presence that he is a god who is with us see jesus gives us hope in death because in the resurrection jesus has defeated death itself in fact this was promised in isaiah he will swallow up death forever if you are afraid of death draw near to the one who has swallowed up death forever see in christ you and i can live with hope over death that, because that means that ultimately that death is not the thing that will swallow you up because it has already been defeated. That doesn't mean that you will feel better about death immediately. It means that whenever your fear shows up of death, draw near to the one who has overcome it. Name the fear and draw near to the one whose name is hope. Jesus gives us hope in our shame. See, in the resurrection, Jesus washes away our shame, specifically because on the cross, Jesus endured the shame that you and I deserved. This is why it's substantial. This is why it's substantive, because he actually names your shame and then carries your shame. The writer of Hebrews says, look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What this means is that through the resurrection, the stickiness of shame, it melts away. The scriptures teach us that in Christ, because he has risen from the dead, you get a new life. You take off the old and you put on the new. As we even sang earlier, we trade in our shame and we receive glory. This is what Jesus has done. This is who he is. Jesus also gives us hope over earthly powers. See, in the resurrection, Jesus defeats the prevailing powers of the world. And the Apostle Paul told uh, a church this as he wrote to them. He said that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This means that money and celebrity and politics and earthly power and hubris, they do not have the last word. The humility of a loving Savior does, who dies in your place and for your sins and then rises up in victory over Satan, sin, and death. That's where power is. That's how the story ends. See, hope is a person. It's a person who walks with us. It's a person who loves us back, back to life. A person who washes away our shame and gives us joy. A person who conquers evil powers and gives us his spirit. But he does this one day at a time. He does this one conversation at a time. See, what I love about the women's story is that eventually they do make their way back to community and they work this thing out together. The women's fears are not immediately overcome by hope, but slowly, but surely, daily, moment by moment, as they continue to gather, this long obedience, this long hopefulness in the same direction begins to overwhelm their fear and they learn to live with hope. One of the things that is so challenging for us is patience in this process with each other and with ourselves. Living with hope takes a long time because we have so many fears that we have to name and unshackle, if you will, by God's Spirit from our soul. An old way of thinking into a new way of living. This is why it's so good that hope is not a good moral ethic, a good way to be a good neighbor. It's not just something that we have to try and do, nor is it just a story that we have to tell about an empty tomb and an angel. What we really need is Jesus, we need Him. Who walks with us, who who goes before us, who is behind us, who is all around us. See, Jesus is our hope over fear. This is what we see when we watch Jesus rise from the dead. We see hope. We see a long form dismantling of our fears which transforms us into a kind of people who can weather the tribulations of this life and make it to the other side. Can you even imagine if we became a people who were willing to walk that road together? The resurrection road that wasn't just about news on one day that we all had to act like changed us immediately, but if we walked in weakness together with hope, that we named our fears, that we looked to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, of our hope, that we surrendered to Him, I think what we would find is a hope that really does overcome our fears, a hope that really does swallow up death, a hope that really does wash away our shame, and a hope that perfectly and wonderfully and beautifully dismantles the powers of this age and gives us a power in the age to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desire to be a people who live with this kind of hope. It's hard because our fears have become so familiar to us. They have such a power. And so we ask today, I ask for my sisters and brothers that as they name their fears like death and shame and powers that you would demonstrate, you would reveal more and more each day what it looks like to be hopeful. What it is that Jesus answers, responds and overcomes each of these individual fears that he is not just a nice story to tell, that he is hope in the flesh. Father, our marriages need that hope, our families need that hope, our disposition towards our work and our work itself, our friendships, our finances, and the way that we look at our future and our health, all of these things, Father, are riddled with fear, and therefore we are desperate for your hope. And so on this day, on Resurrection Sunday, would your resurrection power wake us up to this living hope so that we live with flourishing, with joy, and with hope as your people. For your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?